This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, yesterday, the European Council President, Charles Michel, made a very important speech In that speech, he signaled that he wanted Europe to be ready for enlargement by 2030. And of course, the European Union has been gearing up for this debate about its future size. And Michel said, enlargement is no longer a dream. It's time to move forward. And we're joined now from Brussels by Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne is the chief Brussels correspondent of Politico. Uh, Suzanne, this was an important speech, and the enlargement project is a very serious project, goes fundamentally to the heart of Europe. There are eight countries on the waiting list at the moment, and there would be issues, for example, on majority voting or unanimity on votes that have to be addressed that are really difficult. Mm, absolutely. And as you said there, Eamon, I mean, it goes to the heart of the issue for the EU. And it's also gearing up to be a big debate, I think, over the next few months. Um, and really, I think the game changer here has been um, the, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. That put the whole enlargement question back on the agenda for Europe. Because I think it's fair to say that the, the last big wave of uh, countries that joined the EU was back in 2000. And four, when 10 countries, those former uh, Eastern Bloc countries joined the EU. And then we had Romania and Bulgaria and some others. But since that, I think there was fatigue set in. And there was a sense uh, among many of the bigger member states, including France particularly, that, you know, the EU had expanded enough. That yes. it was now, it used to be 28, obviously before Britain left, but 27 countries. And um, I think there was a kind of a fear that, um, maybe we, you know, the EU would allow countries in that weren't ready for membership. And I think, to be honest, we've spoken about this before. People were disappointed by what's happened um, in some parts of Poland and Hungary, where once those countries got in in recent years, they've become very autocratic. You know, yes, it's, it, it's one of the ironies when you're outside the EU, you're on best behavior to try and get into the EU, but once you're in, there's very little the EU can do uh, to control your behavior. But I think the war in Ukraine has changed everything and the idea that the reality that this country was invaded and that it really wants to join the EU kind of reminded people and, and refocused attention on what it, it's really about, the idea of Europe, the idea of a democratic club of countries. And I think the kind of moral imperative now 
is for countries to see in the EU, look, people want to join us. How can we do this best? And we have a kind of moral responsibility to open up that possibility for countries who want to join. Now, there are 27 countries in at the moment. There is a proposal for eight. There are eight new countries Hmm. who are seeking accession. And then, of course, there's Ukraine and Moldova. Are Ukraine and Moldova in the eight or are they extra to the eight? Yeah, the, the thing is that lots of these countries, including the eight, are at different stages of the accession. So you're right that uh, Ukraine and Moldova have been grouped together. But the, the issue now is, will they get special treatment because yes. of what's happening in Ukraine? And that's going to be a key problem now because you've got countries in the Western Balkans. They're effectively, you know, former Yugoslav countries, although some have already joined, like Slovenia and Croatia. But, you know, Serbia, Kosovo, Montenegro, they've been waiting in the wings for years and they're at different stages of this process. Um, and they've been kind of diligently, you know, meeting all these different requirements. I mean, you just don't join straight away. What happens is if you do an application, there is a, it's called in EU speak, there are different chapters, um, that deal with different parts of EU membership and you have to fulfill criteria. So it's everything from, uh, getting rid of corruption, making sure your standards and judiciary and media freedom are up to EU standards, making sure your economy is up to EU standards. Obviously, a lot of these countries, all of them really, are are poor, relatively speaking. Yes. So they're on this path, filling up, you know, filling in all these uh, recommendations. And there's a sense that, particularly a country I'm thinking of is Serbia. You know, they've been waiting the wings for ages. I remember myself doing a, a trip with the commission back in like 10 years ago to Belgrade. And I remember meeting Serbian officials who back then were getting frustrated saying, we're doing everything. And yet this is very slow. 10 years later, they're nowhere near joining. And in the meantime, Russia has invested a lot in Serbia. You know, you, yes. you're going to lose these people if you don't bring them in. So I think one of the big problems now for Brussels will be it's kind of not fair on those countries that have been waiting the wings that if all the attention is on Ukraine, although some of them would say, look, it's good that there is a debate at all about this. And we believe that it'll be good for all of us, at least with Ukraine, you know, that the boat will bring up the tie that we'll all kind of benefit from this. Um, But Ukraine is a biggie. I mean, it, it, it's literally the biggest. That's the yes. other issue. It's It's got a population of, I, I don't have it here in front of me, I think around 40 million. 40 million, yes. So, you know, that's going to have huge implications for the EU if, if Ukraine joins. Now, in his speech yesterday, Charles Michel, who would he be the second most important person yeah. after Ursula von der Leyen? Yeah. I think that's fair to say, yeah. And, and he represents member state more, you know, than the commission, yes. Now... He said yesterday uh, on this question of enlargement that the really thorny issue was whether enlargement should entail a move away from unanimous decision-making on sensitive matters. Mm. He took what's described in your own publication, Politico, he took what was regarded as the middle ground stance, completely scrapping unanimity could be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And um, this mm. will be a hard nut to crack, he said, but there is no way to avoid this debate now. I imagine, Suzanne, will you maybe you can tell me that the the big founding nations, the original six, for mm. example, Germany and France, Italy, they might have a problem with the qualified majority voting that is increasingly 
decides what the EU's position is. Yeah. So this is the idea. And I mean, there's, there's two aspects. Number one is, I suppose, that in order for any of these countries to join, you need the unanimous support of all yes. the countries. So, you know, this is going to be a huge task in reality. How would Croatia regard Serb- Serbia yeah, joining, I know, for example? I know. And I mean, the, the, exactly, that there's an issue there. I mean, another issue is that we, I just, I didn't even mention Kosovo was one of the six uh, yes. Western Balkan countries, and five EU countries don't recognize Kosovo as a country. Right. Okay. So they've, they're really got a battle. But, but what I think what's interesting here and wh- why this speech is significant, uh, as well as the unanimity issue, is that he's almost starting this debate because some people are saying, you know, is there a bit of a halfway house that you could kind of have some of these countries involved in certain things in the EU? Like, for example, Kosovo is the most problematic issue because if, if countries don't recognize it as a country, like it's not in the UN, that's going to be a problem. So, but maybe they could be involved in certain things in the EU because actually they're a country that have really adhered to lots of EU standards, you know, more than Serbia, for example. But on the unanimity thing, he's right that, like, if all these countries join eventually, you're going to have a sprawling group and then one country can block anything. Yes. Now, this is actually interesting for Ireland because, now, not everything needs unanimous agreement. Some, as you said, mean needs qualified majority, which is kind of a an equation that allows, you know, you, you have a certain majority, but it means yes. that just the big member states can't decide everything and small member states like Ireland have a, a say. But for example, taxation, that's the obvious one for Ireland. Yes. Are they going to move to, if they start scrapping unanimity, that means that if a qualified majority wants to do something on taxation and Ireland was isolated on that, it would be tough luck. Yes. And I can imagine that Ireland will be opposed to that. Or I think the debate will be, you know, on certain areas that you could get rid of this need for unanimous agreement. So one of the problems last year during the sanctions discussions, which were very important but very complex, was that Hungary at the last minute kept blocking everything. Yes. Said, oh, we don't agree with this. And, you know, every country was exposed in different ways, but they really, I mean, Orban, the, the, the Hungarian leader, has become more and more anti-EU, but they were able to block things. So people are saying, well, that's not really fair either. So, but then I think a lot of people would be worried about Ukraine eventually joining. Number one is at the moment, um, there are concerns about like corruption standards. I mean, obviously this is a country at war, but they, and they are cleaning up their act, you know, they have done huge changes, but that's one of the issues. And the the Americans say that too. But I think more importantly would be implications for agriculture. Ukraine is such a huge um, agriculture producer. Uh, very successful agriculture producer. And if it comes into the common agricultural policy, that would have huge implications there. And it's not just Ireland. I mean, France are big, you know, the French farmers yes. are going to be watching that closely. Yes, indeed. And I mean, Ukraine is known and has been forever as the breadbasket of Europe. Indeed. Let me ask you about Turkey. <laughs> Turkey mm. have wanted to join the EU for a very long time, Suzanne. And some countries have said this can never happen. Mm. Um, yet I see in the speech that Charles Michel said Turkey is mentioned. Yeah. And I think it's the French who have said they can never join. And it was an issue in the Brexit debate as well, scaremongering, I think. Yeah, certainly was. You're absolutely right on that. That's been very interesting. I mean, this year Turkey had elections and Erdogan, you know, the increasingly autocratic leader, was elected again. Um but for Turkey, I mean, it actually, uh, something like it's it's the longest standing relationship with the EU. I think 
they have had some kind of a promise to join the EU or yes. start negotiations for something like 50, 60 years. Yes. It's going back years. And Turkey does have a customs union with the EU. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's hugely political. And there's no appetite really in Brussels to open up membership uh, to Turkey. However, I do think there's been a change now. And um, they're realizing, again, you know, it, it's almost like Europe, okay, they can ignore these countries, but if they do, other countries are going to come in and have influence. So Turkey's role there at the Black Sea has become hugely important with Ukraine. Yes. Um, Turkey, the member of NATO. So all of a sudden, particularly countries in Eastern Europe are saying, hang on, we, it's better have Turkey with us, you know, than, yes. you know, so it, the geopolitics has changed completely. And Turkey has always had this really important role there. Um, in that, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true about it being the bridge between Europe uh, and Asia. So that's, I, I think what we're going to see in the next few months is there's going to be a reinvigoration of the relationship between Turkey and the EU. Tur the Turks, for example, um, I was writing about this earlier in the year, but they, they're very, like, for, for Turkish people, they, they've hugely onerous um, restrictions when it comes to getting visas to get into the EU. Whereas yes. some other countries, like, for example, I mentioned Kosovo, they've reached some kind of a visa agreement with the EU. So those kind of things matter to people in Turkey. And again, you know, Turkish people are beginning to get tired of this idea that they might sometime join the EU and they don't feel like it's ever going to happen. So I do think it's significant. Again, Turkey, a huge country, very, yes. very important. Um, but they, I do think there's going to be a renewed effort to try and get some kind of maybe mini agreements for Turkey. It mightn't be membership. But to try yes. and open up this relationship with Turkey better, it's obviously a massive partner when it comes to migration and, you know, the idea of, you know, crime and drug trafficking and all those kind of things. Now, I mean, very cynically, the EU back in the Merkel era, era around 2015, 2016, during the migration crisis, effectively, you know, paid Turkey to keep migrants in Turkey. And Turkey has yes. done, I visited there myself years ago, has done huge work in taking in a lot of Syrian refugees. Yes. Um, and, you know, so it, it's a very cynical move, but the Europe needs to keep Turkey kind of on its side in a sense. So, but you're right. I think politically, the idea of Turkey joining the EU, a lot of the big countries, particularly France and, and the Netherlands, you know, don't really want that. I mean, Turkey's got a huge, uh, uh, Greece, uh, Germany has a huge Turkish diaspora. But um, I think it's going to become a big issue linked with migration, particularly coming up ahead of the European elections next year. And Turkey would have what might be uh, euphemistically calls a democratic deficit when it comes to the present uh, yeah. leadership, uh, Erdogan. And, and exactly. It, it, so, for example, those standards that I mentioned, they're not coming close to meeting them. No. So, you know, it's Turkey's own fault in the sense that under Erdogan, I mean, he's locked up opposition leaders. There is no media freedom. You know, the list goes on and on. So yeah. having Erdogan in, in power, you know, he, nothing's going to change significantly. They're, they're not going to get near EU under him because unless he reverses course on a lot of these issues. Um, so it's just never going to happen because they're not doing their side of the bargain. But secretly, Europe is quite happy to keep it like that, too, because it doesn't actually want Turkey in. But yeah. as I say, there is that sense, look, we need to start looking at what we do have in common, maybe on trade and economics and visas, and see can we work closer together. I think that is going to happen in the next few months. Now, the Czech Republic have said that uh, they are afraid of Russian imperialism, which is, of course, the Putin effect. An enlarged European Union, and even in the seven years between now and 2030, when this is hopefully uh, uh, enlarged uh, and these countries are in, 
What does it mean, Suzanne, in terms of arms, an army, mm. neutrality, or say Ireland's neutrality? If the European Union consists of all of these 30-something nations, what can they do about the threat that Russia might pose in the future? Yeah, that's a good if, point. Yeah, you, tell me what the thinking is there. How did they get over this thing of not having, I mean, the French have a nuclear facilities and assets, but, for example, Germany has, has very little. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, this issue of an EU defence system has really come to the forefront in the last year since the invasion of Ukraine. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is, might be a hunch, but almost I feel like that debate kind of peaked. You know, the what's happening now is that countries are giving Ukraine a lot of weaponry, fighter jets now, that kind of thing. But it's been done kind of on a bilateral basis that, like, you know, Germany can decide to do that. France yes. can decide to do that. Now, there was a move, particularly by the French commissioner, Thierry Breton, who's a very powerful and a very kind of vocal member of the European Commission, and he's the French commissioner. And he's also in, in, involved in industrial strategy and defence. So he's been really pushing this. We need an EU defence industry. And, you know, there are moves to do that where the EU would maybe provide funding. But really, it's relatively small. You know, it's not at the level where the EU is going to become this big arms producer. It's just not going to happen. Um, so, but you are right that a lot of countries, particularly in the East, you know, for them, it doesn't feel like there's an Ireland, but for them, defense is everything. You know, this is the dominant well, Yes, and I mean, if you have a force in the world, and if you need to protect what you have, and to defend your uh, group, whether it's 30 or, or 20, you do need the means mm. uh, to do that, don't you? You do. I mean, I think the intersection between the EU and NATO is key here. So, you know, right. that's NATO's job, a lot of people would say. Now, what's happening is more and more, I think there's only four countries left, including Ireland, that are members of the EU that are not members of NATO after yes. Sweden joins, which it will do ultimately. So, you're, you're, it's, and now there's also a structured thing where the EU and NATO are kind of having more talks together. They're not yes. a separate. Now they are separate, obviously, but you know, I think the NATO Secretary General um, attended one of the last EU summits, for example. Now yes. this will not. I mean, countries like Austria, like Ireland, you know, do uh, it, that's not affecting their neutrality. But it is undoubtedly the case that for most other countries, defence is becoming more important. However, I think this is an interesting kind of angle on this. Ironically, a lot of the countries who want more defence, and, and this is, applies to some of the eastern countries like Poland, actually instinctively don't want the EU to get more defence capabilities because they believe that's the role of NATO and they believe that's kind yes. of pushing across NATO. So in a way, you know, it sounds contradictory, but they just want a stronger NATO. They feel like, well, the EU, why is it getting involved in defence really? It's not really its job, which, you know, is a very valid point. It's not a job. You know, the EU is, a, is an economic project, really. That's what the EU is. You know, why, why does it start kind of half getting involved in defence? when a lot of these countries are in NATO anyway, and they're quite happy with that, and they're investing in their arms that, you know, themselves and through NATO. So I don't think the EU is really going to get into that space, because frankly, it just doesn't have the capabilities to do that. NATO is no. already doing that. And yeah, for example, uh, Turkey's in NATO. 
Yeah, it could, uh, exactly. and not allowed into the EU. Yeah, that's a very good example. So, and then there's actually like you know, randomly Montenegro uh, is a member of NATO, a tiny country in the Western Balkans. That's one of those countries that wants to join the EU. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Trump joked about this during the Trump years, saying, you know, we're not going to start World War Three over Montenegro. He was horrified that like. You know, this random tiny country in the Western Balkans was now a NATO member. And that meant that the U.S. would have to jump to its defense. It was based. But, you know, so it's not it's not perfect alignment. I mean, Ukraine here is very interesting, too, though, because Ukraine wants to join NATO. That's very controversial because a lot of countries feel that would be very provocative to Russia. Yes. But a lot of people in Ukraine kind of think, you know, the EU and NATO are similar things. They want to join both. Although... You know, as I say, in NATO, there's a reluctance to allow Ukraine to join. But I mean, if they were to join, that's a whole different ballgame. But I don't think that's on the agenda anytime soon. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bites. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Now, given, for example, something you cited earlier, Suzanne, the Poles and the Hungarians are really not conforming to the norms in many respects, democratic norms that seem to be at the heart or should be at the heart of the European Union, and they appear to be able to do that, is it likely that more of these new countries coming in, or some of them, will say, well, look, this doesn't apply to Poland, it doesn't apply to Hungary, I mean, I'm thinking about sort of laws, press freedom, and attitudes to certain cultural behavior. Is the EU walking into trouble um, in in these areas where there won't be one EU position on anything very much, and there will be it will be extremely difficult to lead the European Union from Brussels and to exert control? 
Yeah, I think that's such a good point because you're absolutely right. If the EU expands more and expands east, yes, in that these countries in, you know, the newer members are going to obviously have more relative weight than they used to have. And for example, I think one of the fears that if Ukraine joined, Ukraine and Poland, if you club them together, I, I don't know yeah. the figures, but they would be, you know, well over 100 million people. It would suddenly become this big block within the EU. They, yes. they could caucus together, they could vote together. And like there is a divide. There's been a lot of talk over the last year or two that, you know, the balance of power in Europe has been shifting east. And a lot of these Eastern European countries like the Baltics, Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia, who'd been warning about Russia and everyone kind of ignored them, have been proved right. And I remember Ursula von der Leyen said that in a speech last year, kind of, we should have listened to you. So they've become more authoritative. And But, you know, they, there is a split between West and East. And I was, uh, I remember just, I, I was on an event in Austria last year, and I remember being like personally kind of shocked because there were lots of, there were journalists and there were, you know, think tank people from a lot of countries in Central and East Europe. And I couldn't believe about climate change. Yes. How different the view was. Like there was a whole thing. Oh, well, is Brussels imposing ridiculous limits on us? I mean, my view is, and I'm not afraid to say that Brussels is right to have very strong standards yes. on you know, ambitions on climate targets and try to be the world leader. But the reality is for a lot of countries, I'm thinking Poland, they don't see it that way. They feel, no, no, we, we you know, it's too quick of a transition and we don't think you should be imposing that on us. So like, that's one example of a whole area where you're going to be yep. including some countries that don't share the more Western mainstream view on that. And I think that's going to be a problem for the EU. So there is a, a cultural change. I, I also, you know, a lot of the um, newer member states feel like they're sometimes still treated as second class citizens a bit. Yes. That like, even the way I'm talking about it now, makes it sound like a dichotomy, you know, oh, it's the Easterners versus the Westerners. I mean, Ireland, we need to remember, I can't remember, it's obviously we, Ireland celebrated 50 years of the EU this year. You know, we were one of the early joiners of the EU. We joined before Spain, before Portugal, you know, yes. for a lot of these. So we're one of the oldies. Um, but a lot of these countries, I think you're absolutely right that that is, and this is maybe what Sharon Michelle is talking about, about this unanimity. You know, we're going to have to think about how we make decisions. As you say there, you know, it's going to be very hard to get agree. It's hard enough getting agreement, but now getting agreement with an even bigger group with very different histories and very different perspectives is going to be a major challenge, uh, particularly as the bloc moves east. Um, so I think a country to wa watch here would be Macron, would be France. Yes. You know, they're very, I mean, anyway, they're very dominant in the EU now under Macron. He's a very committed European thinker and he believes in the European project, but he seems to be warming up to this idea even that we do need to think about enlargement. Like he's changed yes. his mind, but the way we do this is going to be important. So there's probably going to be lots of debates now happening, you know, about do we, as I say, you know, do we let, should we have a two-tier system where you're kind of half in some countries, but then I can envisage that a lot of countries who've been waging the wings won't be happy with that. They want to be right. full members. So we are right about like who will. So I think one of the things to watch, we already had the, the predecessor to Sharon Michel was Donald Tusk, the Polish politician. But we don't, yes. we haven't had that many Eastern Europeans who've held big jobs in Europe. So no, and Tusk, Tusk was a particularly effective. Yes. Um, very strong. Very, very strong. strong. And he's back in. Uh, Poland now. He is fighting uh, election. Trying try yeah. fight the good fight. Exactly. And just let me ask you a final question, which is that the original idea of the six European Union countries, uh, they made their deal with the basic objective 
of stopping wars in Europe, particularly mm. between the Germans and the French. That seems to have, Europe has passed on from that time, has it, Suzanne, mm. in your view? And the other thing I just, uh, as a PS almost, the UK is in NATO. Uh, it's not in the EU any longer. Some people feel that that's a loss for the EU. What's your own view of that? Yeah, there are really good points. I mean, the first one about, you know, the peace project that was kind of the EU. I mean, yes. you're absolutely right. It was obviously founded just after World War II and this idea of never again. But I do think, though, Eamon, as well, we have to remember, it was also initially called the European Coal and Steel Community. Yes. It was also an economic project. And yes. I think that, you know, Europe, they were clever enough to see, hang on, we've got America on one side of us, we've got the Soviet Union on the other side, and we're squashed in between. And if we don't pool our economic resources, we're going right. to be in trouble. Yeah. So at its very inception, I think the economic idea, the idea of a single market was crucial to this. Yes. Um, and, and those two things are still linked. You know, th I think they are. Um, and actually, that links into the second point, because actually Britain, for example, this is one of the ironies, of course, that even Thatcher, you know, Britain was such a believer in the single market, you know, this yes. idea of uh, this capitalist almost idea of the of the single market and pooling your resources uh, and that kind of thing. I mean, look, uh, Britain's exit from the EU, uh, I think, has, I mean, I, Europe has definitely moved on. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there's yes. very, there's minimal conversation about Brexit now, minimal interest. Um, number one is they are, I, I won't use the word lucky, but because Britain is a member of NATO and NATO is also headquartered in yes. Brussels, it's kind of given Britain a renewed relevance. So yes, I, it, ha, in Brussels, like I'm often invited to, vet, you know, the British and NATO are very vocal. They're a very strong member of NATO. They'd have events. They have an ambassador there. It's kind of given them a raison d'etre in Brussels now because they're a big defense player. But I do think, and again, this is a, a you know, an, it, it's something that Ireland needs to think about. I see it as an Irish person, even though I'm not covering it from an Irish perspective here with political, but I see it all the time that um, I do think that Britain's departure has been negative for the EU in terms yes, of I do too. this idea of protectionism. Like yeah. I mentioned before, France is definitely the most, you know, very dominant at the moment. And France, I mean, I'm stereotyping, but there is a grain of truth in this. It's a more protectionist thinking country. Yes, it is. It is more about let's this idea of strategic autonomy that Macron talks about. It's about like, boosting French industry, you know, boosting more investment in Europe. Now, everybody kind of believes that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, Ireland is a country. I mean, there's a whole other debate to be had about this, about whether it's work for Ireland. But Ireland has built its economic, you know, identity on free trade. Yes. We, you know, Ireland, a lot of countries in the EU saying, hang on, we don't believe it's all about, you know, developing our own industries. We actually believe the trade, particularly for a small country, is brilliant. It helps bring up you know, investment, it gives jobs. And there are a smaller group of countries who believe that. Us and some of the Nordics, you know, Estonia I'm thinking of, even these small countries like the, the Danes, the Scandinavians. Yes. But Britain going, it was a cliche, but it was absolutely true, has been a major loss for that perspective because it was yes, such indeed. a big power. And it's also been a major loss for Britain, if you look at their economy. Um, it's lose-lose yeah. all around. Absolutely. Suzanne, we're very grateful to you for uh, joining us from Brussels, that's Suzanne Lynch, she's Chief Brussels Correspondent for Politico and uh, a really, really outstanding journalist. And we're grateful to Suzanne, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.